The fog of war and the shrouds of time conspire to turn arrow fodder into the savior of the day. Forgotten nobodies would be wise to make themselves scarce. <laughs> I'll show you. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Blind to Nostalgia. I'm R. Kistling, the great and powerful cheese fry, and on this show, I take a look at games that came, conquered, and left their mark on the memories of gamers everywhere, but never met my inputs. Today we'll be looking at cult classic from 1998, Medieval, released as a PS1 exclusive. Just as a quick full disclosure, I was playing the PS3 digital download version, the PS1 classic. This is also technically not my first time playing Medieval. I owned the Medieval Resurrection, the remake on the PSP that came out in 2006. Although, after playing both that and this, I realized they are very different games. But first, let's talk a little bit about the game, its uh, genre, its controls, and such. After that, we'll get to the story, and then closing thoughts. So as with most games uh, that released in the late 90s, Medieval is a adventure explorer, platformer, hack-and-slash kind of thing. And it's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, the developers hid a lot of secrets in each level. Uh, you've got treasures, you've got enemies everywhere, and then you've got what I would almost consider a MacGuffin. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit when we get to the story. Um, but that MacGuffin is, uh, I'll go ahead and say it, is the chalice. So medieval is about Sir Daniel Fortescue, and he is a dead uh, and revived, quote, hero. Uh, this is sort of one of those histories written by the victors sort of uh, situations, where everyone who is still living remembers Sir Daniel Fortescue as the man who slayed the evil enchanter Zarak, who is the main baddie of this game. Uh, but that's not really what happened. Um, Sir Daniel actually died during the first charge. And uh, technically this is spoilers, but it, it's the very first thing you see when you boot up the game. So plus everyone's watching like Jacksepticeye and all them play the let's plays of the remake. And it's literally the same game with better controls from what I understand. I don't know. I don't own a PS4. So have not been able to test that out myself, but every level has the same anatomy for lack of a better word. You've got your almost labyrinthian level layout. Then you've got it, a bunch of enemies smattered through it. The difficulty of those enemies depend uh, very, very heavily on how the level's laid out. And these levels are really, really short. So to incentivize you to spend more time in the level, to search everywhere, and to kill most of the enemies, they have a chalice in every single level. And this chalice fills up a little bit. It's a big spirit cup that you find physically in the level, and it's filling up as you kill enemies and it empties as you uh, accidentally kill people like regular people or, or uh, civilians. 
Unfortunately, as far as level design goes, the chalice tends to be placed a closer to the beginning of the level than to the end, even though you have to kill so many enemies and then go back to retrieve the chalice. That's a bit annoying, but it's not game-breaking. But once you've collected the chalice, you are uh, granted access to this area called the Hall of Heroes. And this is where, think Valhalla. So this is where all the, the famous heroes of Galomir, which is the setting of this, this world, this is where all the heroes of Galomir uh, go and they, they spend their afterlife drinking and partying and dancing and playing music and just, it's Valhalla. It's literally just Valhalla. But throughout the story, Sir Daniel, if he collects the chalice in each level, can visit Valhalla and retrieve weapons and items and spells from these heroes of the past. And it's actually really cool because it you go from having a short sword, some throwing daggers, and being able to throw Daniel's arm as a boomerang to having things like a crossbow and later a longbow in both regular flaming and magic varieties. You get a battle axe that replaces the use of Dan's arm. And it's really, actually, I, I use the battle axe more than I probably should have. Uh, you get spears, you get uh, an enchanted sword and eventually a magic sword that you don't have to keep enchanting. You get the gold shield that can be repaired at a, at a merchant. And then you get um, a spell from the Hall of Heroes. You get another one at the ver- in the very last level. In short, you go kill a bunch of enemies, prove yourself as a hero, you're granted access to the Hall of Heroes, and then you get to expand your arsenal. And trust me, that becomes extremely useful as you get towards the end game. Another thing that Medieval does that is very reminiscent of older games is um, color-coded locks on doors. They're, uh, they're notified by a colored hand jutting out from outside. So it could be red, blue, yellow, gray, I think is another one, green. And these have a corresponding rune key somewhere in the level prior to it. And this also incentivizes you to go explore. I will say most levels can be 100%ed on their first try. uh, If you know what to do and what you're looking for. There's one level, uh, two levels that I had to go back and do just because I didn't realize or I didn't connect the dots. And then there's... Uh, and one of those levels you have to keep coming back to because you need like three or four different items to actually complete it. There are also health fountains, or in the game they're referred to as fountains of rejuvenation. In the manual, they're referred to as uh, health fountains. I will just refer to them as life geysers from here forward just because I like that name better. I think that's funnier. Um, and these life geysers at first seem like just infinite wells of health and lives um, because they are used to fill up your health bar and your life bottles, which act as extra lives, essentially. Um, You're only granted so many throughout the game. I 100%ed it, and I think I had like nine. I think you're allowed nine total life bars, which would be eight life bottles plus your health bar that you start out with. Um, I originally thought that these were infinite and made the game super easy. Uh, I was very quickly proven wrong. It's only got enough to fill up three life bottles. So that's 900 points of health total per life geyser. Um, 
Of course, these are super helpful, but they do massively slow down the game. This uh, And a lot of the things that they did ended up slowing down the game incredibly. Um, these life geysers, they, f- they don't fill up your health bar very quickly. And if you need to refill on just like your health bar and your, uh, you know, two other life bottles, you're going to be standing there for almost a full minute. So it, it, it gets a little tedious, um, as you get through the later games or through the later levels rather. And it's especially terrible because, uh, somewhere during the mid game, I had to keep going back to the first level. And thankfully the first level, the graveyard has two life geysers. So I was able to fill up 600 points of health every level, uh, or every time, but it's still really, really annoying or, uh, 1800 points rather, not 600. One other thing that is in every single level is there's at least one merchant gargoyle. And, uh, I'm going to refer to these as shops just just know that when I say shop, I'm talking about the merchant gargoyles. Uh, and uh, this is where you can restock on your uh, your ranged items. So crossbow bolts, arrows in all three varieties, um, your spears. You can also re-enchant the enchanted sword or you can repair the golden shield in these. And there's also an enemy in the game that can steal your stuff. And if you let them get away, you have to rebuy your, uh, your item again. I never had that problem. I don't see, I don't see why they were included in the first place, the imps, uh, but I didn't have a problem with them. So it's okay. So now that I'm done talking a little bit about how the level or what's in the levels, rather the anatomy of the levels, let me talk a little bit about their design. Um, They start off really open. You know, you have, I think the first three levels of the game, first four levels of the game are pretty well designed in my, in my opinion, graveyard. It's a great way to get accustomed to the game. Um, And then you've got uh, cemetery Hill, which shows you that there are branching paths and secrets and things like that. And then you've got your first boss fight area, which is the mausoleum, the hilltop mausoleum. Once you're done with that, there's a level called Return to the Graveyard, which is literally just the graveyard, but turned backwards and you only access half of it. But there's another part that opens up. This is the first level that um, shows you that, yeah, this game looked easy at first. We're going to kick you in the nads a bunch. And it's mostly going to be because of platforming. And they get really, really happy with that as they start to go on. Later levels add difficulty almost entirely by adding thin and hard to navigate paths over instant death uh, something. We can consider it a pit, but normally it's like water or mud or sludge or slime or oil. And then they'll put enemies on that pathway that will knock you back into those pits. And it's awful and the... Uh, controls didn't really help. I made the mistake of trying to control it almost exclusively with the D-pad for the first half of my playthrough. Uh, if you're playing on the PS3 version, uh, the PS3 digital download version, or even if it's accessible on the PS4, again, I don't know because I don't own one, please turn your analog stick control to analog because it defaults to digital and I don't know how to change the default. It makes the game a lot easier to control. Uh, you just have to be mindful of how far you're pushing the stick. And doing that made the game a little less frustrating, but there were some other things that 
uh, bothered me. And of course, we're gonna I'm gonna go ahead and start talking about the controls because this is almost directly affected by level design. So your basic controls are you press square for a heavy attack and you hold it for a charged attack. Most weapons can do that. I think with Dan's arm and the battle axe, they don't have a charged attack. They just chuck it or they're just chucked and act like a boomerang. Um, triangle is your crouch or your guard if you're holding a shield. Uh, circle jumps uh, and X is your light attack. And that's normally your quick snappy attack. Select accesses your inventory, start pauses, and if you double tap on the D-pad, um, and this is if you're not using your analog stick, if you double tap on the D-pad, that allows Dan to break out into a sprint. That is one of the touchiest controls, and I died more to that bad control than literally anything else, uh, along with how janky the camera is. And I understand this is late 90s. This is early 3D platforming uh, camera problems. Uh, and control styles, they're still trying to figure it out. You know, L2 and R2 controlled the camera. I mean, sure, that's how Spyro did it earlier the year that Medieval was released. I think that's how Mario 64 did it or something very similar because they had the C buttons. Um, one problem, though, that I've had with every 3D game from this era that I've played is that they treat the camera like a physical object. So there are a lot of times where you want to turn the camera around to be behind Dan, but because of how the camera works and how the camera is treated, it won't let you. So it becomes a, a constant fight with the camera. I, I, I literally died more to the platforming and to the camera than anything else. There's another strange thing that the camera does where it will uh, change very suddenly. It'll like fade black, come back in if you're moving to a different room. And I don't mean like physically it has to load in a new room. I mean like it's loaded in the same area. And this happened a lot in the Hilltype Museum. You're in the same area and you step through a doorway and suddenly your control changes. Your control of Daniel is directly tied to where the camera is facing. So... If the camera is facing one way up is away from the camera. This also gets annoying when you're trying to platform because the camera will tend to want to move a bunch to try and get the quote best camera angle for the situation. And I, I think that's a paraphrased quote directly from the manual. Um, sometimes you just want to go straight. Sometimes you just want to go straight and you can't unless you actually compensate with the stick. And it that killed me a bunch too. In fact, I think I die, uh, game over three times, two of those were to the camera and one was to the final boss. That's how jank the camera and the controls were. Thankfully, I don't have a ton to complain about. I'm pretty sure it's just the camera and the controls and a little bit of the later level uh, level design. But as far as like the things that matter, right? How does the game look? Well, it didn't age super well, but it still looks pretty good, especially when um, Dan isn't a bunch of pixels because the camera zoomed out far away. But the theming is really nice. So it's very... The word I keep seeing used is Tim Burton-esque. I kind of agree. Maybe. I'm, I got more of a... Um, Almost a 90s DreamWorks does dark sort of feeling. So my mind immediately goes to Quest for Camelot. Um, I would almost consider 
Resurrection to be a bit more Tim Burton-esque, um, just because the enemy designs are a little bit creepier. Um, and I think the, the the character designs and the enemy designs and the animations in the remake in, Re- uh, in Resurrection, in the 2006 remake, not the 2019 remake, uh, are much more expressive, much more memorable than the ones in the uh, 90, uh, the 98 game. Um, especially since there are so many things that are very almost cliche about the first game. So you've got, obviously you've got zombies, you've got armored zombies. Oh, you've got um, zombie dogs, I think. Um, you've got scarecrows. As the game goes on, you've got shadow demons, which are literally just um, black almost like uh, gargoyle looking things. They're not very interesting to look at. Um, I think the most interesting enemy design throughout the entire game was Zarok, um, both in his human form and in his final boss form. And we'll talk about that towards the end uh, in the spoiler section. Although I don't, do I need a spoiler section for a game that is literally 21 years old? Do I, do I really? Um, but thankfully the, uh, most of the de- designs, it's still very dark because, you know, everything's dead. A Almost an infinite night has been thrown upon the, the world of Galamir. Um, but everything's still legible. You can still see Dan uh, across everything. You don't get you don't get blindsided by enemies because of their designs. You get blindsided uh, by enemies because of the camera, if that makes sense. Uh, and also, I mean, everything kind of has to fit thematically as far as like death and, 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 um, and darkness because our protagonist is literally dead. Sir Daniel Fortescue is actually a skeleton who is dead. And funny enough, missing his bottom jaw. So, uh, almost all of his dialogue is, you know, I'm not using a rolling jaw at all. It's actually kind of annoying to listen to. I think they may have fixed it at some point. Um, and a lot of his audio did not match up with what he was actually supposed to be saying. And that annoyed me a little. But I mean, that's an I am Groot kind of complaint. So it's okay. Um, one more note about like design that I want to mention before moving on is that in the Enchanted Earth or in the remake, the Enchanted Forest, um, the Tomb of the Shadow Demons looks like Squidward. That's all I have to say about that. Moving on to talk a little bit about the sound and the music. It's very, um, it's got, uh, I, 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 I'm almost afraid to use the word medieval just to avoid the pun. Um, But there's lots of choir, there's strings, there's horns, and then there's a lot of ambience as well. So it's very much a medieval band. Thankfully, uh, as far as combat goes, you generally know what's going to happen. You'll know if there's an enemy that's about to knock your clock out because um, they'll telegraph most of their attacks, not really with animation. The animation's kind of lacking on that. But there is an audio cue. Most of them will give some sort of grunt or a screech or something. And you'll generally know if there's an enemy around you because of that. Um, Zarok's voice is probably the best. His voice acting is probably the best in the whole game. Uh, it's very menacing. You can tell he's very wise. He's, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And it's awesome. I love Zarok's voice. Uh, and then one 
just tiny little thing. This is a very short section, of course. Um, uh, one more tiny little thing that I found extremely entertaining, and sometimes I would just stand there and and jump up and down for no reason, is if you make Dan jump when he's under some sort of structure, his head makes a little tink sound. Uh, it's it's hilarious, and I love it when developers think of things like that. Like, oh well, what if he's a skeleton? What if uh, he jumps underneath? What kind of sound would his what kind of sound was it, would his head make? A little hollow sound, I guess. Yeah, let's let's implement that. Let's go. Let's tell a folly artist to do that, and we'll put that in the game. I love stuff like that. All right, now we're going to move on into what I'm going to consider the spoil section. I'm not going to give you a time to skip to because this game is literally 21 years old and it's been re-released twice. I don't think I need to give a full spoiler warning for this game. Um, We're just going to move right on into it, talking about the story and the boss fights as they happen. So the game starts out with this lovely, just absolutely nostalgic 90s super jank FMV with the, with the big crushed artifacts and everything. I love it. Um, and we learned that Zerok is a evil wizard, you know, your, your classic evil wizard with a mashed potato face, um, who at one point tried to take over the kingdom of Galamir um, by practicing necromancy and was eventually stopped in a grand battle between the armies of Galamir and the army of the dead. Um, and that uh, that battle was led by Sir Daniel Fortescue, who is our, quote, hero that led that charge. Um, Galamir remembers him as being the one who, despite his injuries, slayed uh, Zerok. That is absolutely not what happens. We learn that as soon as we gain control. In fact, the line from the cold opening, the fog of war and the shrouds of time conspire to turn arrow fodder into the savior of the day. These are the first words we hear once the in-engine... Um, quote cutscenes start taking over. Um, yes, yeah, Sir Daniel actually died at the first charge. He took an arrow to the eye. Um, but of course, he's still remembered as a hero. Um, Zerok returns, having not actually died. He was in exile for a century. Uh, and he starts raising the dead. He steals the souls from the living. So they, they're referred to as the sleeping. Um, and he also accidentally resurrects uh, Fortescue. And that is, uh, <laughs> that's where the first of his mistakes happen. Um, so Sir Daniel wakes up in his crypt and after a short diegetic tutorial, and by that, I mean, most of the stuff you need to learn to control is, uh, given to you via books, but you can also just noodle around with the, uh, controls. You don't actually have to read the books. Um, but once he's comfortable in his body, meaning once the player is comfortable controlling him, you venture out into the graveyard. And this graveyard is the, uh, the path that leads up to the hilltop mausoleum. Uh, you need to head that way because the mausoleum demon, the stained glass demon, holds the key to get to the town. Uh, so during this port- part of the story... The levels are relatively linear, right? So once Dan makes it through the graveyard, uh, he makes it to the mausoleum hill, the cemetery hill, rather. And Zarok is walking out, having met with the mausoleum demon, and he recognizes Sir Daniel. And he tries to off him right there using a couple of gargoyles that spit boulders out. Doesn't work 
Daniel makes it up the hill. No problem. No questions asked. Um, and then he, he enters the mausoleum and he, uh, kills the demon within and yoinks the key. Now, this is our first boss fight of the game. So let me talk a little bit about the mausoleum demon, uh, as a boss, as a character, almost nothing, right? He's no dialogue at all. Um, but as a, as a, as a boss, um, it's actually a really good first boss fight, in my opinion. Um, I think the Mausoleum Demon and the Boss Rush at the end, those are the best two bosses of the game. Um, so the Mausoleum Demon is only vulnerable at certain points, only when the stained glass heart is showing, and he's normally doing that as he's charging an attack. So it's a risk versus reward thing. Um, I have in my notes here, he hurts like an MF. Uh, that's almost true, but you learn his pattern pretty easily. I think I only lost one uh, life bottle. Yes, I beat him on my first try, but only used one life bottle. Um, the demon really only has four attacks, though. He has one on the ground where he's throwing uh, glass shards at you. You can jump over those really easily. And then he's got three aerial attacks while he's charging his heart. One that rapid fires shards. Uh, you definitely don't want to be in that way because that's one of the attacks that hurts really, really heavy. Um, he also has a, a beam that freezes Sir Daniel in glass. If he gets caught, um, it does damage over time. So you're trying to break out of it. Uh, and then he's also got a room size nuke. I only saw the nuke once, but I believe that was the attack that I actually lost my first life bottle on. I have in my notes. It was, uh, it made me glad I had extra lives all of a sudden. Um, I was even more glad at the beginning of the next level after you defeat the mausoleum demon, which is titled return to the graveyard. So this is that level that I was talking about where it's the first level, but reversed and harder. And, uh, this also ends in a boss fight. I have here as a note, uh, after returning to the graveyard, Sir Daniel faces off against the guardians of the graveyard, defeats him with the help of a friend's hammer. This is the war hammer that you get for having three chalices. So you get the chalice from the graveyard, the chalice from Hilltop Ma or the Cemetery Hill, and then Hilltop Mausoleum. You collect all three chalices, you get the war hammer. Um, and uh, yeah, the this is an interesting thing that they did where they would have multiple bosses in a row. Um, it got kind of tiring. I'm glad they didn't do it over and over and over where like every couple of levels was a boss fight, but it was still very tiring at this point because you just faced off about against a tough enemy. And now literally the next level, which is a long level, by the way, return to the graveyard is not a short level. Um, in fact, I think it's the second longest in the game behind the time device. Uh, but you face off again against the Guardians of the, gra the Graveyard. And that's a pair of dog statues that are invulnerable most of the time. They're kind of ethereal most of the time, and then they will pounce. And for about three seconds, they're vulnerable. And of course, you're dodging them, so you're away from them. It took me a very long time to beat them or figure out how to beat them. Uh, and, and Guardians of the Graveyard is actually very reminiscent of, or very telling rather, of the rest of the bosses in the game where they're not vulnerable for very long. So you have to, or and they only have like one or two attacks. So I think I lost three life bottles to them. 
I don't know if I game overed against them because I game overed because of platforming earlier in the level. Um, they have one way to beat them, and that is literally just to hold your shield up and tank the attacks. Uh, in fact, I have I have uh, in my notes here thought, okay, but no, really, how was I intended to do this? Answer. Tank the attack, stupid. Did you really expect to be given this much healing and not need it to get hit? Um, I feel like that's bad boss design, honestly. I should be able to take out a boss without ever being hit. Uh, but with the Guardians, you have no choice. Moving back on to the story, um, it's this is an adventure game, so most of the story is told through the actions and the levels that you travel through and not so much... Um, actual dialogue so daniel makes it out of the graveyard and he um, goes to the sleeping village and this is where that note about the hidden book comes in uh, in a book hidden behind a rune door in the sleeping village it's uh, titled history of galamir part three it mentions that dan killed cardock which is um Zarok's champion it also says that he killed Zarok. um however when you collect your first chalice um, the first hero that you talk to, which is Kenny Tim, uh, who was Dan's squire, I believe, um, says that he was the one that killed Cardock. Uh, in uh, History of Galamir Part 4, it says that Kenny Tim died during the first volley, when in reality it was Dan. So it's one of those history favors the hero, and also we learned that uh, the king was very partial to Dan, um, and I think they go into it more in the 2019 remake. Uh, I think they released a, a digital comic or something like that along with that. Um, that was just an interesting note um, showing that everyone, uh, most of the heroes in the Hall of Heroes are actually like really hounding Dan because he went down in history and not them. And he didn't really do anything that the history book said, um, whereas they did. Anyway. While we're in the sleeping village, we learn that Zarok is looking for an item called the Dark Artifact. And this uh, item serves as a key to the Shadow World and was hidden by the mayor of the village. So this is one of those situations where we're going back and forth between levels. Uh, that one level that you keep having to go back to before you have all the items you need to complete it. That is um, the Enchanted Earth. But once you uh, free the mayor and you collect the Dark Artifact... Um, the mayor was being trapped in a uh, insane asylum, by the way. Um, you go back and you um, release the demons yourself uh, in the enchanted forest through that squidward looking door. <laughs> I still can't get over that one. Um, in fact, every I, I don't think I'll ever be able to play the remake without seeing um, Squidward's face on the door, even if they re modeled it to not look like Squidward. Um, but after freeing the mare and releasing the demons, um, you're given a dragon gem, one of two. Uh, after defeating the King Pumpkin in the, uh, the levels titled the Pumpkin Serpent, it comes after Scarecrow Fields and Pumpkin Gorge, uh, which in my opinion, the two worst levels in the game, those two. Um, you're given a, uh, you're after defeating the King Pumpkin, which is a boss fight, you're granted uh, the second Dragon Gem. Now, these Dragon Gems are required to um, gain a, uh, a potion that gives you Dragon Armor um, 
and you need that to make it through or to finish the level the gallows gauntlet so a lot of these items are not uh, not optional you just don't realize they're mandatory until you get to the level where you actually need it that's kind of bad game design and as well but i understand why they did it they want you to be fully prepared by the end of the game all right since i've mentioned both the king pumpkin and the dragon and the enchanted earth i want to uh talk about their boss fights king pumpkin found at the end of the level the pumpkin serpent i one of the worst bosses in the game as far as like how interesting it was um it didn't really have an attack all i did was just keep throwing the axe at it and i won in under 30 seconds don't know if it was supposed to be a tougher fight than that i mean i got a hit a couple times because that's i was just standing too close um i did not at all like the pumpkin serpent as a level, but at least it was a little bit better as far as the where do I go aspect than the level that preceded it, Pumpkin Gorge. In the Enchanted Earth, uh, which you play immediately after the Pumpkin Serpent, or at least I did, you face off against a couple of shadow demons, uh, or actually I listed them as shadow devils. I'm not sure if there's an official title for those. Um, they're about halfway through the level, uh, and I only died to them because the floor moved. They only have two attacks, and that's shoot fireballs and summon boulders. Totally a piece of cake. The only reason why I kept uh, losing life bottles was because uh, the floor tilted and the controls... I. I really did not like the controls in this game. I died more to those than anything else. And the Shadow Devil um, boss fight definitely showed that. I think I died two or three times to them. And then the dragon. Um, the only reason why I don't hate the dragon is because he had a lot of personality and he's an optional boss. Uh, so he's found in the level after the Sunken City, I think is what the level was called. And it's uh, in the level the Crystal Caves. And he was super easy. Literally, all you do is smack the platform or behind the, the one that he sticks his head out of. So I call him an optional boss fight. Of course, you do have to go back and beat him to get the dragon potion, which gives you the dragon armor, which you need to finish um, the gallows gauntlet. But at the time, I thought he was optional. He, You have to fight him. Thankfully, he's super easy. Again, another one of those didn't really have an attack. He just, if you're standing on the platform where he sticks his head out, you get burned. That's about it. While I'm still kind of in this area of the map, I do want to talk a little bit about the Ant Queen. The Ant Queen is in a quest called the Ant's Nest that you get from a witch in the Enchanted Earth level. Um, the, the Ant's Nest, I, I hated that level because it was, again, one of those labyrinthian, where the fuck do I go sort of levels. Um, I literally had to look up a walkthrough and then I had to back through that walkthrough a bunch of times. It took me almost an hour just to finish that level alone. Um, thankfully it culminated in a pretty decent boss fight. So the Ant Queen has four attacks. Call for Ants, which actually send out the harder variant of the Ant, which takes like three hits of the hammer instead of just one. And then it's got um, Single Acid Spit. I've, this is what I've listed them as. Single Acid Spit, which uh, if you get hit by it, you take a huge chunk of damage. I think it was like 150 points of damage or something just from getting hit by that. You also have Rain Acid Spit. Um, now, the Ant Queen is vulnerable um, during this one, if you want to take the chance, but this is just 
rapid fire acid spit, each individual does not hurt as hard as when it's the single acid spit, but you still don't want to get hit by the whole thing. Uh, and then it also has a rain of boulders. It is super easy to avoid this one because it shows you the shadow where it's coming from. So just don't stand there. Um, she's also vulnerable, uh, vulnerable during this attack. So it is the best to hit her at this point. Um, I did not have the ax at this point, so I was just using the crossbow. Took me a few cycles, super easy, but I have in my notes, apart from the stained glass demon, she was the most interesting boss as of, uh, up to this point. And that's, that holds to be almost true. Uh, by the end of the game. And that's pretty sad because she is 100% optional. You do not need to do the um, that le that level. Literally, all you get from that is the, uh, the chicken drumstick weapon. And I did not use that at near as much as I thought I would, um, considering that it turns enemies into um, roast chicken. But you don't get enough health from that for it to matter to me anyway. All right, so back to talking about the story. Uh, once we've gone through the crystal caves under the sunken city of Melomere, Dan fights the dragon um, and then uh, goes through the gallows gauntlet, which is essentially where all the criminals went to be punished um, before returning to King Peregrine's castle. Um, Dan, <laughs> Dan makes it through the castle. He rescues a couple of farmers. Um, he, he meets back up with King... Uh, Peregrine and King Peregrine tells him, look, the only way we're going to cut off uh, access to the rest of uh, Galomir from where Zerok is, is to destroy the castle. Thankfully, the castle is sitting on top of an active volcano and literally all that's keeping it uh, afloat is a single floodgate. So we flip the switch, destroy the castle and fling ourselves away. Um, we or Dan lands on his face, uh, ends up getting chased by a dragon, picked up by a giant buzzard, and taken to a ghost pirate ship. Yeah, this just got really wild. And I, I almost feel like that's plot convenience. And they also added the ghost pirate ship level just to add out a little bit more time. Um, because I felt like if you cut that level out, it did not matter at all. Because it felt like the ghost pirates uh, were there despite Zerok raising the dead, I think they were already existing. I don't feel like Zerok actually raised them because they have nothing to do with Zerok at all. Did not like that level. Ends in a boss fight, super boring boss fight. All you're doing is lighting two um, cannons with the club uh, and shooting at the captain. The only good thing about it is, I believe after completing that, you get another life bottle. I think that was the only good thing about it. Okay, they, so they used it as plot convenience because Dan had to have a way to get to Xerox's castle, which is at the top of a mountain. I can kind of understand it now. Um, so anyway, we defeat the captain and set the bearings towards the, or heading towards Xerox's uh, castle. We literally just stroll right in. The shortest level of the game is, uh, I forget what it's titled now, but it's the, the entryway, the foyer level. Uh, there's like, the only enemies are imps. They go down in one swing of the magic sword. There was no problem with that one. The next level is actually my favorite in the game. The only thing that ruins it is the bad controls and the terrible camera. And that is the time device. 
So below Xerox entryway is this giant, it's almost like a clock device uh, that Dan has to weave his way through. And there's a puzzle at the beginning of it where you have to set it to a certain time to be able to access a life bottle and to be able to access later on in the level. I also really like this level because it's split off into like five different areas. And there's a train that you take that's late in the level that takes you to the other areas to open up the way to Xerox actual lair. I, I really enjoyed that. Unfortunately, in the remake, in the 2006 remake uh, in Resurrection, that level was not included. And I can sort of understand why that would make people really upset because that, hands down, best level of the game was the time device. So by this point, Dan has been killing enemies. He has been... Um, rescuing people he has been filling chalices and filling out his arsenal and so now we make it to the final arena uh in the immortal words of the president of the united states at the end of house of the dead 2 it's time for the final battle uh unfortunately xerox lair is a boss rush level so there's not any platforming to be done um but it is a great crescendo of a final hurrah to the end of the game Upon entering the area, uh, the arena within the lair, Dan faces off against an army of Xerox forces, but he's aided with an army of his own. And this is based on how many of the chalices you collected. I think it's like one, uh, one soldier per two chalices is what it felt like. And you also get the final spell of the game, which is good lightning. Um, I did not test good lightning against any of the other enemies, but it does heal your allies. Uh, at the cost of your own health bar. And this is, I think this is really telling of how Dan has grown as a hero. Uh, he starts out wanting to prove himself. And in the end, he's not even the one fighting in the war. He's helping his own people fight in the war. Sure, it's disappointing that you're not using this huge arsenal of weaponry that you've gathered out throughout the entire um game. Um, you've mostly just been using the hammer, the axe, and the magic sword by this point. Well, once you've gathered all three of those. Um, but, you know, it does, it is very showing of a hero that he is not trying to seek the glory himself. He's helping his own, uh, his own men um, fight this, this, uh, this final battle. Um, after that, you're mostly healed from that. Every surviving skeleton on Dan's side um, gives him with a, a health vial, which refills, I believe, a small portion of his health plus a uh, health or a life bottle. So then uh, once that's all done, Zarok sends out Kardok, his champion. I let me talk about Kardok for a second. Uh, as far as his boss fight goes, his boss fight was actually really bad. Um, he's phase two of the boss rush. Literally all he does is ride around his horse. I don't think he could be hit with ranged weapons. I'm pretty sure he had some sort of a shield that protected him from that. Literally all I did was tank the hits and swing the massive magic sword. Um, literally applying the same strategy as the Guardian of the Graveyard. I did not like the Kardok portion of the fight. So once you defeat Kardok, Zarok um, comes out and tries to fight um, Dan on his own. Of course, you would think this is a wizard, right? You would want to see a bunch of spells. You'd want to see him raise the dead again, just like in um, 
the the ant queen fight. You'd want to have this huge battle. Instead, what he does is he off screen turns himself into the stained glass demon lizard thing. Um, now, it's not a terrible boss fight. Uh, demon Zarok moves fast, hits hard. Um, unfortunately, it's the worst kind of moves fast and hits hard because while he can smack you real hard, he is invulnerable, invulnerable most of the time and can only really be hit when he's standing up. And he'll do that a couple of times and his basic attack is just a swipe. However, after he drops down below a certain health point, I think it's about halfway, uh, he'll bait out your attacks by standing up, dropping his his invulnerability, but then he'll start charging up a spell that uh, uses fire energy beams to light Dan on fire. That is not a whole lot of fun. Um, Of course, once you've learned the pattern... Zarok is super easy. You just keep running around until he's invulnerable and then smack him with the giant sword. Very disappointing boss fight, in my opinion. I didn't use almost any of the weaponry that was given to me uh, throughout the game. I think I I ran out of spears at one point during the game and never restocked on them, and it was fine. Um, Zarok killed me once. Um, so back to the storyline... Uh, once we defeat Zarok, uh, he tries to bring down the uh, his lair on top of Dan to try and trap them both in there forever. Um, unfortunately, he is then, or I guess fortunately for Dan, he is promptly squashed by said rubble, by the rubble of his uh, of his castle. I I actually had to pause the game there. That had me laughing. The humor in this game is at least on point. Um, and then after that, you see Dan run out of the, the in-engine arena. And then we end the game with another lovely 90s FMV that shows uh, Dan making his daring escape. And the whole mountain starts to collapse around him. Um, he takes a leap of faith. And the same buzzard that took him to the ghost pirate ship picks him up. They share a moment. And you start to see all the souls of the villagers return to their bodies. You see all the souls of the dead return to their graves. It's great. It's actually very uplifting. Uh, And then, because I was a completionist and went for every single chalice, uh, Dan lays to rest in his crypt before joining the heroes that helped him on his journey uh, in the Hall of Heroes, although he's still a skeleton. And I think that's because he didn't earn his, his, uh, his heroism. He didn't become a hero to the universe until he was dead. So, I think that's very telling. Uh, the story, very bare bones, very bare bones. But it was it's, it's good for what game it was attached to. So, now that I've pretty much gone over everything, I think now it's time for my final thoughts. So, the, the game itself is not terrible. I think my major complaint with it and the only reason why I couldn't have as much fun with it as many people who remember it well did it was it was the controls you know Spyro the Dragon had already been out uh it came out earlier that year and I understand it takes longer than a year to develop a game but uh this game was early in development I believe or at least midway through development um when Spyro came out and Spyro controlled much better even just using the directional pads um 
it had better camera control. They understood that the camera was still a physical object, so you had much wider areas, whereas with um, Medieval, you end up with cramped areas that you can't really find your way through very well, and the camera is fighting you literally the entire time. And then, of course, that double tap to run thing on the D-pad killed me more than I'd like to admit, just because of the fact that if, you, uh, if you're trying to readjust yourself chances are you're going to tap the the d-pad button a couple of times just to get him to move uh, and then he just runs off of a platform uh, so that sucked a little bit but the level designs themselves were interesting they were varied I, there weren't many games that were themed this way before there aren't many games since um of course, uh, I have a note here that says problem. Many of the later levels are mazes with a healthy dose of what the fuck next. Um, I still, I still hold on to that. I wrote that really early in my playthrough, but I still agree with it. Um, a lot of the levels ended up becoming labyrinthian. The, their idea of getting harder was to make it, uh, harder to get through the platform instead of making the, uh, the use of different weapons necessary. I think the only time I used the range weapons that actually had ammunition was to uh, aim a little bit faster uh, during uh, or when you were fighting uh, flying enemies. Otherwise, I'd just use the axe. Um, and then I have a few other notes here. Let's see. Um, oh, yes. Uh, the select the select menu. That was also really annoying because that's the only way you can access your inventory. Unfortunately, if Dan is moving at all. Like, even if he's slowing down from a sprint, you cannot access your inventory. And that, I got a couple of cheap hits uh, against me because of that. And that was a little annoying. The Life Geysers didn't really make the game any more fun. I would have liked it if his health regenerated at the beginning of every level. And that could have maybe even opened up some possibilities for later levels to be difficult due to enemies instead of due to... Um, due to uh, platforming. Uh, instead, what I ended up doing was I kept going back to the to the first level of the game over and over and over to restock on health and to restock on gold so that I could get more ammunition because the game gets really stingy with health towards the end of the game, even though they know you probably have a ton of health bottles that are empty um, that you might want to fill up. And it also gets really stingy with gold, and that gets to be a problem... Uh, once you have the crossbow, the three bows, uh, and the, uh, the spears, because you can't find that ammunition in the world. You have to buy it. And the gold runs dry really, really quick because he does not completely refill it. You have to choose. And sometimes you don't have enough gold to even get some arrows, especially when you're constantly repairing your shield. Uh, that was a little bit annoying to me. I I wish they had fixed that. That's some things that needed to be fixed that weren't uh, in either of the remakes, unfortunately. Um, all in all, I enjoyed the game. It wasn't terrible. Do, do I think I would have remembered it as fondly as some people uh, if I had played it back in 98 as a what was I at 98? I was, okay, so I would have played it in probably 02 or 03, so when I was 4 or 5. Um, no, I don't think I would. In fact, I think this would have been one of the games that uh, I would have not finished. 
because of how frustrating it was to deal with the camera, how frustrating it was to platform. Um, I mean, my first video game was Spyro the Dragon, which was built and played way better than this. I, I did not not enjoy it. I will say that, but I feel like this game could have been better than its memory allows. And I feel like anyone, uh, who defends this game over um, Resurrection just because of the story and because of the cut content from Resurrection should probably replay the first game, uh, this one, the 98 version, uh, just to realize how janky this game was. Um, Again, not terrible. I feel like if they had polished it a little bit more, got the controls under control, decided to go against the grain and not make the camera a physical object in the world, this game would have been much better if they had made the levels a little bit more interesting as far as how they were designed and not how they were themed. That would have made the game a lot better. I think the most interestingly designed level was the pirate ship, and it didn't need to be there. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my thoughts on Medieval. Not a terrible game, not a great game. I feel like most people are actually nostalgia blind when they're talking about this game, uh, especially the 98 version. So uh, with that, I think I've said my piece. Blind to Nostalgia is an independent production, so I have to take time out of my busy schedule to do this, but I love doing this and I hope you enjoy listening. You can follow me on Twitter. That's R Kistling Jones. That's R K I S T L I N G J O N E S. You can also support me financially on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cheese fry. That is patreon.com forward slash C H I Z F R I. Today's proverb everyone deserves a second chance, even a game where the camera kills you more than the enemies. And as always, have a great day.